Let's jump into the Word of God together. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be at this morning. Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to read a significant portion of the text this morning. And so, um, you know, if you have not been in the Word, which I doubt that's the case this morning, you will get in the Word this, right now. And so there will definitely be some, some, some Scripture that's read here this morning. So Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read, um, and I'm going to move pretty quick through the text, all the way to verse 33. So that's a lot. Uh, or verse 31, I'm sorry. Um, so we'll, we'll get all that, and then hopefully um, I'll be able to just share some thoughts here from the text that will be of help to you this morning. Now, as they spoke to the people, verse 1, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made whole, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone that was rejected by the builders, by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man whom had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred amongst themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them to not speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John, I love just how that just keeps on interrupting the the narrative there. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did, the heath, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the child and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, or whom, excuse me, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, Look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal 
and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of the holy, your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Father, thank you for today, and I, I just ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts today. May we be encouraged by the response of your people in the first century and this forming body of believers Peter and John and others, no doubt, taking a stand and um, choosing to obey you rather than men. And, Father, we know that in the context that we are in today in the Northeast, there are no doubt going to be many opportunities where opposition comes across our table. But may we, like those who um, of the past, the very first century for that matter, uh, trust you. May we rely upon you and your word. And may we see that there is nothing that takes you by surprise. And therefore, we can fully rely upon you and trust in you. And may we, like they also, ask of you, God, please fill us with your spirit. And may we preach your your word and your gospel boldly. We ask for that boldness. May we not back up, Father. May we truly see the need to just preach Jesus to the world around us. May that be the declaration of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I, I recall, I lived, in, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. I served as youth pastor down there for about three and a half years, and um, it's a little more conservative down there, uh, a little easier, I should say, to get a, um, a, a pistol permit, and I was in the process of doing that, and I uh, went to Range USA, was local uh, firing range in Memphis, Tennessee, and took all the lectures and the instruction on safety and laws and uh, this is not a, a Second Amendment rights message, by the way. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going. I'm a, I believe in text-driven preaching, so I'm getting to this just an illustration. Um, the instruction I did went through all the instruction on safety, laws, and freedoms that we have um, that were amazing. Um, but the one thing that we were all looking forward to was the firing range, and uh, we finally got to the firing range, and there I took my brand new uh, 40 caliber uh, Millennium Pro Taurus, and I was ready to just you know, man, just create a nice pattern on that, on that uh, uh, at the firing range. And they lined us all up. They got us into our separate booths, and we started to shoot. And here I am. I'm like, I'm happy because I'm actually creating a decent pattern on my target. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I start seeing random holes on my target. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure, no, there's another one. I did not just shoot. What's, what's going on here? And come to find out, the guy next to me, was actually, I don't know, blind as a bat, and he was hitting my target. <laughs> now, the problem, the problem with that is, is that, you know, well, there's many problems. He, he's, he's blind as a bat. He probably doesn't deserve to be in the booth next. But I'm being graded on this actual, you know, this, this, this target practice. And so um, I quickly <laughs> raised a red flag, and I said, hey, listen, right there, you can see there's another, another shot coming up. And this guy, is, he's pegging my, he's hitting my target. And they pulled him aside and got him out, and I was able to get a fresh target and start all over again. Um, you know, our life is full of, uh, as, as comical as that is, I just look back at myself, man, I, I really, I'm so thankful everybody was safe that day because, it, you know, you had, maybe it was just cockeyed this way a little bit. I don't know what was going on, but nonetheless, anyways, you know, our life is full of examinations and tests. How far before final is here? Next week, there you go. So, I mean, there's school-wise, um, uh, road tests. Uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the United States Army. There are a lot of t- 
tests that I'm taking, even as a chaplain, uh, as, um, that I am constantly have to train myself up on. Um, there's tests at home. <laughs> there's all kinds of exams and tests that we go through as Christians. Um, the truth of the matter is, that's a prescription that God has given to us overall. We are absolutely guaranteed tests. Uh, a pastor years ago told uh, a crowd just about this size, uh, a pastor friend of mine, uh, Ernest Gambrell, down in Memphis, Tennessee, said, hey, listen, he asked the question, have you ever gone through a test or a storm? And then he says, if you haven't, wait. They're coming. There's storms, there's tests. And I'm not talking about, like, any political tests. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just talking about tests, period, in life, storms that we go through, things that we will, be, we will face and things that will push back on us as human beings, but even as Christians. And that's just a reality. It's a prescription. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, I believe, says that any, anyone who lives godly will suffer persecution. And that is a reality that, that uh, we will all face. In fact, Jesus, over and over, and I'll share here in a moment how in the Scripture Jesus stated that, um, you know, if you're going to follow me, you need to take up your cross. If you're going to follow me, understand this, the world's going to hate you. But understand this, it first hated me before it hated you. It regards my words before it regards your words. And that's something that we are all going to face, no doubt. The background of this text is this. Peter and John have just gone through um, and healed a man uh, there and um, in the temple at the hour of prayer. You'll see that in chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. Uh, they're passing by a lame man at the gates. The man is healed, and they enter into the temple. The man is clinging to Peter and John as, you know, obviously you would be too if your life was just changed radically the same way. And everybody's noticing this. Words like in the New King James, marvel. And, uh, you know, they're, they're marveling at this. In other words, like they're surprised and amazed in verse 10 of chapter 3 uh, because of what actually happened. Because they knew this man who was in his 40s now had been like that since he was born. And so whenever these two individuals come and they heal this man, uh, I love the statement that they make there in chapter 3. They said, um, in chapter 3, verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So he was looking up and expecting something monetarily, some physical financial gain of some sort, but they were giving him something far better, and that was Jesus. And uh, he says, We don't have silver and gold, but one thing I do have is I have Jesus. And he changed. He raised this man up from, the, from, from his situation. He's clinging to them. And Peter preaches, he takes that moment, I love uh, even what chapter 3 says in verse 12, so when Peter saw it, um, which is what, uh, similar to what even um, Paul saw there at Athens, when he saw the situation around him, he took advantage of that opportunity. And that's exactly what we're called to do as Christians. When you see an opportunity, boy, you better take a hold of that and run with it and do something with it by God's grace. And um, truthfully, if we think about it here in the Northeast, there's many, we have to really look for those opportunities, and whenever we see them, hopefully by God's grace, we take them. But Peter saw that opportunity, and what does he do? He preaches. Well, anytime Peter gets an opportunity to speak, he tends to do that. But here he preaches, filled with the Holy Spirit of God this time, right? And he preaches, you see, and you see that in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. But Peter preaches Jesus alive and risen along with a plea of repentance and faith. And what happens? 5,000 plus people come to Christ by faith. And you see that in verse 4. How, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's going to raise some awareness. If 5,000 plus people 
turn their life over to Christ at any given moment, any, any moment, somebody's going to be looking at that, right? It's, it's gonna be ve- there's going to be a very real situational awareness going on. There's going to be people who are looking and saying, what's going on over there? 5,000 plus people. That's an amazing thing. And what we see in our text today is a first century church, that is believers, who were so committed to their risen Savior Jesus, their examination was worthy of their faith. And they're going to be put on exam. And I've entitled this chapel message, Examination Day. And I think that all of us will have an examination day at some point where our faith will be put on examination. We will be judged. We will be interrogated. Uh, We will be, our life will be put in the light. If we're standing for Jesus, our life will be put in the light and people will question us. People will interrogate us. People will examine us. They will judge us. And that is something that comes with the territory. And I find more and more, the less and less I'm doing what God has called me to do, the less and less I'm examined. The less and less I'm judged. And you will find the same exact thing. The less and less you do for Jesus, the less and less examination that takes place. But the more and more you do for Jesus, the more examinations come. And that's why a lot of us bail. (laughs) Um, There's been many times where I thought to myself, boy, I don't know if, not, not necessarily, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus But boy, I don't know what's coming ahead as I do follow Jesus. It makes me fearful sometimes. I'm just being honest with you. And and as a young man, I think to myself, boy, if if I'm going to follow Jesus, this is a very real thing. If you're a genuine Christian, it requires of you to genuinely follow someone that is Jesus, and you are genuinely going to be examined. That's a scary thing but it's something that we're all called to as Christians. And so that's by way of application there a little bit. But nonetheless, um, here is a group of believers in the first century from the very, out of the gate, from the very get-go, these guys are being put in examination. Uh, Here's a question. What if God put your faith through examination today? What if we this day, our faith, what if this day our faith was examined? Because at some point it is going to be put on under the microscope in some capacity. In some way or another, your life, your faith, what you, what you, what you openly believe is going to be an, at some point put on display and examined in some capacity, in some way or another. Um, sometimes easy. Sometimes you get through those moments where your faith has been put on examination. And you're like, that was pretty easy. Not, not as bad as I thought it was going to be. But then there's those moments where many of believers, many of followers of Jesus Christ, their life was put on trial, their life was put on examination, and it was pretty hefty. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm encouraged by reading the biographies of missionaries of years ago and who um, you know, uh, gave much and lay their life on the line um, because that's what they were called to do and, and in the middle of examination. So I want you to see this morning, my prayer is that today you, you, you see embedded in the text, embedded in the scriptures, God's people relying upon him alone through any coming opposition. All right, so here's, here's the first thought for this morning, all right? The church had an opposition to their faith. Let's just put it this way. The church has opposition to our faith. And generally speaking, this is not just the first century church. Um, by the way, if you ever want to encourage yourself in the middle of opposition today, Look back to the text of Scripture and see just how much opposition they faced. 
um, and, and boy, you might just get encouraged and say, okay, it's not so bad. It's not so bad after all, right? Especially in New York, right? Or Vermont or the Northeast or wherever it may be. But the opposition to their faith, all right? In light of the gospel growth, they face opposition. Verse 4 says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so you see in chapter 4 that as they spoke, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees, they came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is a problem for them, not only religiously speaking, but also because of their, um, let's say, status speaking. Um, There is a control, there is a positioning that they have that is absolutely being put on, uh, you know, critical status, so to speak, because of these men preaching Jesus. There's a problem here. And the problem they have is that, you know, there's several problems here. They preach in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, number one. Um, And then secondly, they're preaching Jesus, period. And that's a big problem. You guys understand that Jesus, even today, is not a very popular name outside of those who I rub shoulders with in the military, which seems to be an absolute, continually popular name, but in the wrong way. Uh, I've, I'm amazed at some of the conversations that I find in the military, but nonetheless, there is no professionality in the military whatsoever when it comes to conversations. Um, but Jesus is not a popular name. They lay hands on them. Things got physical. You see that in verse 3. You see that in verse 17. And you also see that in verse 21, this idea of them threatening. But also in verse number 3 of chapter 4, they laid hands on them. Um, they, things got physical. Um, and they said in verse 17 that it spread no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them. Let us um, verbally, the idea is to verbally warn with threats. Um, you see this on the news today, and you see people who are rioting through the streets, and you see even so boldly now written on signs, verbal or, fi- or visual threats. And, and there was nothing in concealment in, in, in this situation here. They were openly, verbally threatening or desirous of threatening the disciples, John and Peter. And the reason being is because they were preaching Jesus. And that is what may happen when you preach Jesus, right? Uh, there may be people who are offended at that, and they will verbally, or at least verbally, warn you. The idea is verbally warn with an intention of threatening. And so they set them in the midst, verse 7, and every move they made from that point, at the time that they are set in the middle of them, is examined. And you see that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Um, and verse, uh, actually, let's look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged, there's the word, if we this day are judged, all right, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. But look at that phrase in verse 9. If we this day are judged, I, th- I believe... The King James says, if we this day be examined, or something to that effect. If we this day be judged, the New King James says. This word judged, um, I believe it's on the screen there. I'll click it for There we go. This word judged means to be examined, to be interrogated or investigated as in a court uh, situation. Scrutinized, determine, ask, question, or judge. Um, the word that you can really kind of make, maybe expedite the understanding is examined. Right? And all of us understand what examine, examines are, to be examined. Um, when I sat down, uh, and this was just last year, uh, with Dr. Allen and um, 
Dr. McKellar at Southwestern, I counted it a privilege, number one, to sit under those two men and just to be examined. And boy, was that a very um, nervous time uh, to be examined by two men I highly respect as they comb through my dissertation and say, fix this, fix that, fix this, fix that. Oh, great thing right here, but you know what? Work on this a little more, you know? And uh, they start to pick apart your grammar and all these other things, and you don't know what to expect for that matter, but you're now as, as in a, a, a dark room under a light with two men looking at you and saying, what, what, what is this exactly? What does this mean, right? Examination is, is something we're all familiar with. Perhaps you have been interrogated by your parents, and you're as in the same visual in a dark room, and the light's on you, and say, where were you? What did you do? Uh, why did you say this, right? I remember as a kid growing up, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, by no means, nominal at best, Catholic, and um, many, many times where mom examined me, but, but the worst examinations of all were when dad examined me. Years ago, I remember sitting in the, on the floor watching a television show on the floor, and my dad was sitting in his lazy boy behind me. And if you know that positioning, I mean, between, I'm between him and the TV. Uh, he has every opportunity to put me on full examination, to judge my appearance. And boy, did he judge my appearance because in my back pocket was a circle imprint. <laughs> and that circle imprint was, of, was nothing, you know, like, you know, hubba bubba chew gum or anything like that. <laughs> this was a can of Copenhagen. <laughs> And as a young man, he said, son, what is that? He was examining me. And I said, what is what? And he says, that in your back pocket. And it hit me. I said, oh, no, without even turning around. <laughs> I just wanted to stare at that TV and just stay there and say, and wish that my dad was not behind me at that moment examining my back pocket. And, uh, and, and I said, what is what in my back pocket? I knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, long story short, he said, where'd you get that from? And I told him, I said, from some kid on the street. And he said, take me to the kid. <laughs> and so we hopped in his blazer. He was working for the fire department at the time. Very boisterous vehicle. I mean, it didn't just stick out. It stuck out, right? And uh, lights on top. And we're driving around looking for this person that doesn't even exist. And uh, long story short, <laughs> they did not exist. I just told him, I told him a lie. I was lying. And um, kind of find out the, at, the end of the, at the end of that conversation. He knew, and I told the truth. But it, we all know what it means and what it feels like to be examined, what it feels like to have somebody look at us, to watch us, to peer at us, to examine us. And that's exactly what was happening here. They were almost as if peering into the souls of these men and saying, by what name have you preached in the, back at, at the temple? Now, the, the temptation is this. The temptation is to just to revert to some form of a story and to say, well, and make up something. But not for spirit-filled Christians, not for people who follow Jesus. The only, the only response that we have when somebody asks, by what name do you preach, is we preach in the name of Jesus. Amen. And that's who we preach. Dr. Adrian Rogers is perhaps one of the first preachers that I ever heard, and I cut my teeth on Dr. Rogers as a young man, uh, 17 years old, and just his voice alone was just something that I just admired. And I said, man, if I could just listen to him all day, that'd be awesome. And that's exactly what I did. But I remember there was one thing that, that Dr. Rogers was known for. He was known to preach, come to Jesus. 
and he preached Jesus. That's all he knew, and that's all he should have ever known was to preach Jesus. And that's all we should ever know is to preach Jesus. If you want to see somebody's life changed, like the young man or this man, this 40-year-old man, his life has changed in chapter 3, you need to preach Jesus. It is the only answer that we have. In fact, you see that in chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men which, by which we must be saved. There are so many different things, even as a chaplain for the United States Army, that um, you know, the higher-ups are trying to prescribe to me all the time to actually preach for better help toward other people. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm always finding myself finding a way to beeline back to Jesus, whether it's some form of socialism or some form of better well-being or clinical approach to uh, helping the soldiers or whatever it may be, I'm always trying to integrate Jesus because at the center of what I'm about as a preacher and as a chaplain is Jesus. Make much of Jesus. And if you, if you land there all day, you can never err. Make much of Jesus. Whatever you're doing, if you work at uh, you know, Chick-fil-A, like my son does. We're about to go after this, to take him to Clifton Park, New York. Make much of, It's a little easier to do it there because it's a Christian company, but nonetheless, make much of Jesus. If you are a teacher, if you are a student, if you are uh, working at the gas station, whatever you are doing, make much of Jesus because he is the only means by which men can be saved. And when you're examined in this life, do not be afraid. I repeat, do not be afraid to make much of Jesus. He's the only name that we have. Don't ever be afraid of the name of Jesus. And stand up for the name of Jesus. When people desire to put Jesus' name down, stand up for Jesus. Examined, interrogated, investigated, scrutinized, determined, questioned, or judged, we will all face that. As followers of Jesus Christ, there will come a time where our faith will be examined, put to the light. How will it fare? It is not a matter of will we ever be, but when. It is a part of our DNA. It is a part of the prescription that Jesus gave to us. We will face persecution. Listen to this text in John chapter 15. John 15, and I believe it's on the screen there. John 15 says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I shared this a few moments ago. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That phrase alone, before you even read any further, ought to like just be the linchpin to this text. Basically what he's saying is this, I am going through this. Who are you to think otherwise that you won't? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. And so we understand that Jesus, he shows that this is a prescribed reality to all of us. Today we live in an evangelical Christianity that I, I believe misunderstands what we are called to. We have this idea that if we are going to follow this book, if we are going to follow Jesus Christ, that we are going to get to a place where everything is a blessing, there's no issues. We, and constantly in our prayers, we might say something like this, Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, uh, please you know, um, take away this or take away that. And what we forget sometimes is that God says, no, I put that there because I want that in your life. Because if without that, you will not become more like me. You will not be conformed more into my image. Are troubles a prescription to the Christian? Yes. Are trials a prescription to the Christian? Yes. Are, are, are things that we would think to ourselves is from Satan, when oftentimes they are from God, a part of our life as Christians? Yes. These are things that God allows us to go through and wants us to go through and prescribed us to go through. These are things that we will go through 
and when we are put on examination, and when we are judged, and when God allows these divine appointments to go through our life, how will we fare? Struggle is a part of our DNA. Without it, we don't grow. I say this amongst our men, and we have a theologically spread system with our pastors. Um, I'm, like, I'm like a Dr. Allen. I'm like in the middle. I don't want to, you know, I'm like, you know, I believe Christ died for all. I believe that, you know, there's not a single person that Jesus did not die for. I, I believe that he died for all men. And that every person should be given the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ. And if they do, they'll be saved. That's my firm belief. I believe that's in Scripture, and I think I can prove it. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference in our pastoral team, though. And I say this all the time. Men, we grow and rub. I'm so grateful that there is a difference in our pastoral team because I've grown in ways that I would not have if there was not somebody who disagreed with me across the table. And I'm sure that they're growing too because I sure do make my point sometimes. (laughs) And I make certain that, hey, this is where we stand officially as a church uh, here at Redemption Hill Baptist Church. But nonetheless, you know, we grow in rub. We grow in trouble. We grow in trial. But here's the thing. Okay, so we understand this. The reality of opposition is a part of our DNA. If you live godly, Paul said, you will face persecution, Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. But long before the disciples faced opposition for their faith, here in Acts, Jesus called it, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, John 15, verse 20. So when, so when you are examined for good deeds done to helpless lost men here in the Northeast, just know this, Jesus said this would happen. It happened to him first, and by the way, it is good to be in that kind of company. One of the things that I love about our God is this, is that he doesn't just say, do this. He says, let me show you how to do it. And he walked, the the life that Jesus lived, know the gospel as well. The life that Jesus lived is a perfect exemplification as to how you and I can live in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That is the life that he lived, an example for me and you. And he set the tone, the standard by which we can live. We are not without pattern. We are not without standard. He is the standard. He is the pattern. And we can look to him and say, wow, listen, this is how I'm to live. Whoa, that's how I'm to live. (laughs) And the things we face, no doubt, he is allowed to come our way, but it is not without him first going through it in the first place. Number two, obedience was their necessary response. And I'm, I'm guessing we're done at 12. Is that correct? Okay, we're flying in six minutes. Here we go. Obedience was their necessary response. Every bit of our opposition in life their divine appointments from God, their opposition, he laid hands on them, or they laid hands on them, they interrogated them, they examined them, they severely threatened them, and yet their response was this in verse 19. Listen to this. In verse 19 to 20, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak the things which you have seen and heard. Opportunity to obey swings on the hinges of opposition. It is these moments in life that we are tempted to buckle, to give in, or give up. Imagine the first century church collapsing under pressure. Well, we wouldn't be here today, would we? What they saw was significant, the risen Jesus. What they heard was significant, the risen Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus spent 40-plus days with them, ate with them, dined with them. That's going to change you. If you just previously saw this man crucified, like literally just put to death, buried, 
but then he rises from the grave, that's going to do something to your psyche, to your being. That's going to do something to you. And no doubt it did something to them. First John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, you see this. That which we have seen and heard, which we handled, the word of life, we declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And that's exactly what they're declaring here. He's saying, we can't help but absolutely share what we're being convicted of. I can't share anything else but Jesus. There's no way I can turn from this. I love what Peter said. Um, Jesus asked him, who do men say that I am? And Peter told him, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, nobody told you this but the Father. And then he asked, later on he asks him, will you go away also? And then Peter asked, or answers in this way, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, one of these days when I die, I'm standing before you in the end. Why would I abandon you now? I can't escape you. And it's the same thought. It is so enwrapped their minds and hearts. and They were so convicted about this that they saw this risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The only option that they had was to declare him. And that's exactly what we have too. Now, you and I, we've never seen the risen Savior like they did. But Jesus did not say to Thomas, did he not? Blessed are those who believe and have not yet, what, seen? And that is the privilege that you and I have is to have never seen Jesus but still believe on him. It's a privilege. And and Jesus talks about us right in that text in John when he's talking to Thomas. And so what a privilege it is to, to have never seen but yet still preach Jesus. John B. Pilhole says this, and he quotes Robertson a little bit. He says, Peter and John had no choice but to defy the court's order, for it had, as he quotes Robertson, stepped in between the conscience and God. It had stepped between the conscience and God. Contextually speaking, disobedience by nature, disobedience by nature is the heart of men listening to men's words more than God's words. It is the allowance of opposition to step in between the conscience and God. And conviction will help you with that a little bit. Conviction of the scripture and what it says is saying, by all means, by God's grace, I'm going to stand for what's truth here. When opposition comes, and it will, in many shapes here in the Northeast, what level of tolerance will you afford it? What level of tolerance will you afford opposition? Because we'll all afford it. We'll all draw the line in the sand somewhere. And to what level will you do? The newly birthed first century church responded by faith in their God. Notice, this is the final thought here. God was the sole object of their faith. God was the sole object. Recall that this is the forming first century church of the recent risen Jesus Christ. They are just days into experiencing some pretty life-altering circumstances in these events. The cross, the resurrection, appearances, and even Pentecost. Pretty significant. In the middle of all that comes some significant pushback. When you go through that much pushback, you will likely want to be with those who get it. And their get it crowd is other believers. And this is healthy, by the way. None of us live in isolation in in the Northeast. And if you are, you're going to fail. I've seen many, many a times where where pastors have said, us four and no more, and they're no longer. We need each other. And that is in the script. That's right here in the text. They went back to their companions. The word companions is not there in the Greek, but the idea is this. They went back to their own. I like what the King James says. They went back to their own company. 
Um, we call our company at Redemption Hill the company of the redeemed. And that's something essential. But all of them corporately had an object of their faith. And the object of their faith was God. And they corporately celebrated that and moved in that direction. You see that in the text. Look at this real quick. So when they heard it, verse 24 of chapter 4, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God. Lord, you are God. And being let go, they went to their own company. Now think about this, just a real quick applicational thought. There is a band of brothers here in the Northeast, and it is growing constantly. You will need them, you will want them, you will be one. But more than that, make sure the, the, the band of brothers that you're a part of constantly and faithfully, make sure they constantly and faithfully, faithfully push you to rely incessantly on the unfailing Savior, Jesus Christ, in the face of opposition. You're going to need a brother and a sister at some point. Don't see that as so minuscule. That is so important. That is essential. One of the first things that I thought of when we first started raising funds in the Northeast is I found that I raised friends. My, my raising of friends was far better than the raising of funds. Through the friends came resources. Through the friends came prayer. Through the friends came uh, moments where I could lean into brothers and sisters and just share some thoughts with them. I'm telling you, that took me farther than the dollar did in many ways, and it still does. Know and come to know friends here in the Northeast. All right. The first initial response upon uh, regathering with other believers was to raise their voice to God with one accord. They did not give in or succumb to the pressure. They turned to the one who was greater. This is what the church does. Notice what they did in the text. They affirmed his authority over all creation. Verse 24, you are God who made heaven and earth and all the sea and all that is in them. Their faith was not in their surrounding circumstances. In verse 29, you see that. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant in your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And that was the final thing. They asked for boldness to preach Jesus in the light of opposition. And what was the final outcome? Well, you can read the outcome in verse 30 through 31. You see that they're filled with boldness and they preach Jesus more boldly. But here's the concluding thought. The point that I really want to end on is this. Anything good that comes from any work first begins with God's people corporately relying upon God and not the surrounding circumstances. Listen to this. No matter how bad it gets here in the Northeast, trust God and do so in the company of the redeemed. Do that together. If you do it in isolation... You're going to struggle. This band of brothers, and I just heard there is a growing number of, of enrollment coming here at Northeastern. That's an encouragement to me. That's awesome. But this band of brothers that is growing here at Northeastern, you will find in these early days to be some of the best friends and people that you will have in your days going forward. And you might find yourself texting some people that you've developed a relationship here with. You might find yourself spending some time over a cup of coffee with them. You might even spend some time at the cross table that, that you're sitting at with them and crying and just asking for some wisdom and counsel. Your professors here lean heavily into them. And those moments, the, 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 these people that you are building friendships with right now are so essential. They're so important. Um, you know, we understand this. Examination day is coming. You and I will be put to the test here in the Northeast at some point. It will happen. Opposition will come. Obedience is the only necessary response and God is the sole object of our faith. He is God. He is creator. And if he is God and if he is creator, nothing that comes our way can trump that in any capacity. And that's the encouragement that we have, is that we are on the right side. And we have a God in heaven who knows what he's doing.
And boy, I tell you what, what a joy it is to be in that company. I hope this has been an encouragement to you today. I hope in some way or another this has been a help to you. And um, Lord, bless the reading of his word together. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Lord, you are God. What an opportunity to serve you here in the Northeast. And Father, while there are many people who are leaving and uh, just darting the state line, the state lines to go down south or to in some way um, just get a better life or avoid trouble or um, just maybe as we might think build the American dream as opposed to building the kingdom. Father, help us in this area. We need your help today. But I pray specifically, Father, that you would give us the boldness necessary and that we would completely rely on your spirit during these times, knowing that there is absolutely nothing circumstantially that could overtake or stop or thwart what you are doing. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of it. My prayer today is for those who are students here and moving forward in the days ahead, that they would stay in the Northeast and they would see that here in this context, in this geographical location, wherever it may be, in whatever state here in the Northeast, they will say, like the apostles of old said, I cannot but speak the things that I've heard and seen. When we are faced with those tests, may that be the testimony of our hearts. May you be glorified because of many more declaring the same, even in this context, Father. Praise you and thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to hear your word, to reread it, just to look at the text again today. We praise you. Today, as we go, Lord, into our respective locations and responsibilities, may we honor you and say, by all means, God, you are the absolute object of our faith. We trust you. We rely upon you. Give us the boldness necessary to continually preach Jesus. Here in these Vermont cities, here in New Hampshire, New York, Connecticut, whatever it may be, God, may you fill your people corporately encouraging one another with your spirit, boldly proclaiming the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.